Well, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Every time I start a new uh, three-month period, whether I say it or not, and I may say it every time, reminds me of a message or a, a teaching James Montgomery Boyce uh, uh, did on the life of John Calvin, where uh, Calvin had been chased out of Geneva for a couple of years uh, through persecution. And then they, the leaders of the city who uh, wanted him back came to him and uh, begged him to come back because the, the spiritual condition in Geneva had deteriorated terribly. And so when he uh, stood before his congregation the next time, when he returned to Geneva, he said, uh, as I was saying last time, <laughs> and so it's been three months plus uh, six weeks with Andy and Shannon preaching. So as I was saying last time, we're in John, uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 17 is where we left off. This is the Sermon on the Mount uh, from Luke, in Luke's uh, gospel. Where we've been so far, uh, we went through the birth. We went through the prophecy of uh, the birth. We went through John the Baptist's birth. We went through Jesus' birth. We went through his presentation in the temple that Luke gives us so much that the other gospel writers don't. Uh, he, uh, he and his family returned to Nazareth, and he is uh, in the temple at 12 years old, confounding the religious leaders, uh, and, but yet and still at the end of that passage, he's growing in wisdom and in stature continually. Uh, then Luke gives us the genealogy uh, after John the Baptist, after we meet John the Baptist preaching the gospel of the kingdom as he's older, and he begins his ministry. Uh, and in, in chapter 4, he goes through the temptation where he defeats the, uh, every trick that Satan has uh, to put before him to tempt him to uh, subvert the cross, uh, to take an easier way out, uh, and he preaches in his hometown in Nazareth in the synagogue. And that's where he says he is the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. He's come to preach good news to the poor, liberty to the captive, sight to the blind, to free those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus begins to heal he begins to cast out uh, the evil spirits, the unclean demons in fulfillment to, as an example that he has uh, come to fulfill what he said he was going to fulfill. He begins to call his disciples with the miraculous catch of fish. They learn it's profitable to obey the Lord Jesus as he tells them which side to fish upon to fill their nets up. He calls Peter, uh, James, he calls John. He cleanses a leper there in chapter 5, and he heals the paralytic uh, who's let through the ceiling, the roof. And he calls Matthew. He explains to them what the Sabbath is all about. It's not made for, uh, uh, the Sabbath is made for man. Man is not made for the Sabbath. He heals a man with the withered hand, and then he assembles his team, the 12 apostles. And so in verse 17, we pick up where we left off. We'll read the first half of the Sermon on the Plain. It's not really the Sermon on the Mount. It's, uh, he comes down off the mountain having chosen his 12, and this is much like the... Matthew's version that is three chapters long. It's only about a third long. He leaves out some. He'll cover some of what he of Matthew's sermon. He'll we'll find it later on in Luke. 
But the idea is now that the kingdom has come and he has taught them that if I'm doing the works, if I'm doing these miracles by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so the kingdom has come. It will be consummated, of course, in his second coming, but the kingdom of God has come, has broken in upon the lives of these first century people, Jews. And he says, now that the kingdom has come, here's how my people are going to live. Here's how we're called to live. This is not a sermon that by and large tells how to enter the kingdom. This is a message, a teaching on how to live once you are part of the kingdom. And so, we're going to deal with, of course, this message from a high level. It'll frustrate some of you that some of your questions won't be answered. Hopefully, it will be helpful to most. Uh, Let's begin in verse 17. I'm going to read down to verse 26, and then we'll uh, pray, and we'll read the rest of it as we get to it. Verse 17 of Luke 6. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and he said, Blessed are you who who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. That's the beginning of Jesus' message to his disciples in particular with the crowds around and listening Crowds from all over the area. Crowds that were building. So let's pray, ask God to help us as we journey through this great message of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Father, we come to you. We've sung your praises. We have confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord and that we have sinned and we're grateful that forgiveness is found in Him. That when we're faithless, He is faithful. Lord, we come before you to ask that you would help us to hear. Hear with ears that will bring the word to our heart. That the eyes of our understanding might be enlightened. And so we come to you and we ask as the Lord Jesus taught us to ask 
Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, help us to feast and feed upon our Savior Jesus, who is the bread of life. Help us to feed upon your word, whereby we might grow strong. Father, I pray this morning that as we've asked you to forgive our debts, that we might rest in the promise of your forgiveness that comes through this Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, forgive us as we forgive others. A petition we bring before you that we're commanded to bring before you, Father, that requires much of us. Help us to be those who forgive others. Lord, we pray that you'd lead us not into temptation. This morning, there'll be temptations to wander in our thoughts. There'll be temptations to think of other things. Lord, there'll be temptations to plan our week. Lord, don't lead us into the temptations that so easily beset us that we so willingly and easily fall into. We thank you that you've promised to deliver us from evil. So we come to you, we come to you dependent, we come to you in one sense helpless, and we cry out for mercy and help. Thank you for your grace that allows us to approach you, our great God, Majestic, almighty, hear us we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So in those first three verses, we kind of have the setting uh, of Jesus' healing. They've come down on a level plane where they might sit most likely and listen There's a host of benefits of being in the presence of Jesus here. It's a multitude of people from Judea, Jerusalem, and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. That's almost an outline of Acts chapter 1, or the outline of the book of Acts from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. The gospel is already being heard, or at least the... the, uh, Christian manifesto, the word of how to live as a Christian and what Christian life should look like. Uh, These folks will then take it back to where it is that they live. Uh, But notice that they came to hear him to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. Try to imagine a world with no medical technology. A world that is... uh, full of many quacks, many sham uh, healers, and uh, those who were exorcists, at least claiming to be. And this one, the Lord Jesus has come, and verifiably he's healing diseases. And visibly he is uh, defeating the demons of Satan as he casts them out of people who have been debilitated for years and years, many of them. Uh, in chapter 8, Luke is the only one who mentions the, the woman who uh, had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and she spent all of her living on physicians, and she was no better. 
And here's one with just a word who makes them well and cures the demons out of them. So that's the uh, situation, the setting. The news has traveled fast. People are gathering. Verse 19, the crowd, they sought to touch him because power came out. He healed them all. His primary audience, verse 20, he lifted up his eyes to his disciples. That's the primary audience. Uh, Rather than as Matthew does, where Matthew emphasizes the law and righteousness as it relates to the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic law, as Matthew is presenting the gospel of Jesus uh, primarily to the Jews, Luke does not mention, he doesn't link the commands to the Moses law He's speaking primarily, he is arranging this gospel for the sake of the Gentiles. So he doesn't tie them together. And again, this Sermon on the Mount, he is teaching and he is uh, ministering in fulfillment of Luke chapter 4. Persistently contrasting, uh, there's a contrasting of Uh, Ideas throughout this message, we'll see some are blessed, some are cursed. Some some listen, some don't listen. Some build on the right foundation. Others do not build on the right uh, foundation. And what Luke does is he's preparing for, in a sense, a division of Israel into two Israels, two groups of people within the nation of Israel. Some who are joyously responding to the ministry, that the gospel ministry that he is bringing, the new wine. And then on the other hand, there are those who are angrily, angrily rejecting him. And so the two sides are taken as Jesus goes forth proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. And then he reveals this or explains this division in verses 20 to 26, uh, speaks directly again to the disciples individually. What he says in verse 20 to 23, that the true prophets of old had been persecuted by the fathers of those who were persecuting in the first century. There's a long line of faithful preachers throughout the Old Testament. Preaching to God's people who spoke the word of God. And they were persecuted. Uh, On the other hand, verse 24 through 26 The last line of verse 26, their fathers did to the false prophets, they spoke well of them. Two Israels. The first group, the prophets were persecuted. The second group, the the, uh, prophets were preferred. The first group, the persecuted are blessed by God. The second group, The preferred are condemned, denounced. And there's blessings and woes. The blessings come in the first four verses. Blessed, he says, are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you. The idea of blessedness, some some of the more paraphrased uh, versions will say happy. Uh, For the Greek uh, world of uh, things that were judged to make someone happy now, uh, the, the word blessed was, that's what it connotated. You're blessed because you have this and you have that. 
and you are happy now, but Jesus' beatitudes go way past that. Nothing to do with the external circumstances uh, pointed toward a more complete happiness that will ultimately be found in the life to come. And yet, in various ways, we experience the blessedness of peace that's found only in the Lord Jesus now. Already we experience it, but not yet do we experience it in its fullness. Blessed are you, he says, who are poor. Matthew will say poor in spirit. Blessed are you who are hungry. uh, And blessed are you who weep. The poor in spirit are those who... um, are conscious of their bankrupt position. This isn't, uh, I only have a few dollars in my bank. Uh, my, my bank account is low. This is bankrupt. The idea of true uh, poverty. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who are conscious of their bankrupt condition before God. Those who know they're unworthy. Their souls are ruled by humility and by modesty. Just as Jesus says, I am gentle and I am lowly. If you have King James, I am meek and I am lowly. He became our example for this poor in spirit. Uh, He never wavered from his commitments. He was always courageous in the face of opposition. He stood firm in his conviction and purpose, but he emptied himself in order that he might serve his heavenly Father. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, he says, uh, who are hungry now or as Matthew says, hunger and thirst for righteousness. They'll be satisfied or filled. The feeding of 5,000 that we'll see a little bit later in chapter 9 is sort of a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb, of the future satisfaction, the satisfying of our hunger and our thirst. When we eat bread here, These 5,000 who are fed in Luke chapter 9, when Jesus miraculously feeds them, they get hungry again. They have to come, they follow Jesus because they're only filled temporarily. This is a satisfaction that will, our hunger and thirst will be sated, satisfied completely. In the future, though, we're satisfied in Christ here. And yet we're never fully satisfied. Are you? Satisfied to rest in Christ, but are you fully, completely satisfied throughout your days? One day, one day we will be never to hunger and thirst again. Blessed are those who weep They shall laugh. Matthew's corollary, those who mourn, they shall be comforted. There's a natural progression here in Luke's presentation of these beatitudes. The poor in spirit become humble in soul, in their souls, and with a heart that's passionate for uh, righteousness. Righteousness for themselves, ourselves, but not only for ourselves, but for everyone, that everyone might experience that righteousness, that person is easily led into weeping and mourning over sin. Weeping and mourning as we see the consequences of sin, at times the devastating consequences of sin upon our own lives but then upon those of our friends, those of our family, 
weeping over the consequences of sin in the lives of others. So the poor in spirit live lives of modesty and humility, recognizing their condition before God as hopeless and helpless. Then, they hunger and are passionate for righteousness and they're mourning over sin. Those kinds of people are the ones who are comforted by the promises of God. Then he goes... Verse 22 and 23, his fourth beatitude. Blessed are you, and notice uh, what he says. When they hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you, and when they spur your, spurn your name as evil. Why are they hated? On account of the Son of Man. because of their commitment of their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, have you ever felt hated? Have you ever felt excluded? Have you ever felt reviled? Have you ever felt spurned by others because you're simply trying to live according to the Lord Jesus? And his commands. Who are these? Who are the? Who are the haters? Well, look at verse twenty-three. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy when you are hated, excluded, reviled, and spurned. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. These haters had ancestors who taught them how to hate you because they hated the prophets of old. That's who they are. Their fathers did the same to the prophets. It's not unusual. They tried to silence the Old Testament prophets' message. They tried and tried and tried to shut Jeremiah up. Couldn't do it. It's not unusual that they'll be persecuting you, my disciples, Jesus says. This contemporary uh, generation who are rejecting Christ eventually and will persecute Jesus' disciples, they're not pagans, they're not Romans and Greeks from, uh, from that culture scorning God. They're Jews. Jews who are following in the steps of the unbelieving relatives. This is the other Israel that Luke puts forth. They're seeking to silence the good news that Jesus is bringing to these uh, poor in spirit, mourning, longing for righteousness disciples. They're rejecting the only message that will help them in their standing before God. And so therefore they stand under Jesus' indictment in verse 24 through 26. Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are full now. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. They stand under Jesus' indictment, these who are haters of the gospel, of the word of God, haters of Jesus Christ. Clearly not all. Clearly there's two Israels that Luke is putting before us. As Paul says, not all all descendants of Israel are Israel. One belongs to the seed of the woman, the other belongs to the seed of the serpent. Luke puts kind of balances everything out. Blessing and woe, poverty and riches, uh, hunger and filled and weep and laugh, persecution and popularity. 
those who are poor in spirit, those who have an awareness that our worth is not in ourselves, in what we own, in the things that we have. And at the same time, passionate for righteousness, brokenhearted over sin and death. Those who are poor in spirit can become mighty in spirit and powerful witnesses as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. As I was uh, think, I hadn't thought of a song for I don't know how many years, but I thought of as we walk this pilgrim pathway, clouds will overspread the sky. But when traveling days are over, not a shadow, not a sigh. We have a bright future. In Christ. And so Jesus calls his disciples to rejoice, leap for joy when they suffer on account of the Son of Man for two reasons. Their reward is great, and they have this honor. They have this privilege of belonging to a cadre of people who through the ages have been suffering people because They belong to the one true God. Jesus says, just because you, the kingdom has come and you have entered into the kingdom, that fact won't change in this life. I always wonder about persecution. Do you? Paul says to Timothy, those who desire to live godly will be persecuted. We don't know a lot about persecution. Uh, a strong persecution. Um, most who reject the gospel here, by and large, do it civilly, uh, kind of cloaked with civility, though their heart is raging, maybe. Um, growing more hostile by the day, it seems. But they don't hate us. Our, our world doesn't, our culture don't, doesn't hate us to the point that they are seeking to harm us, at least not very often. And there may be two reasons for that. I'm not sure what the reasons are for that. We, of course, live in America. We're in a great place. But there's two reasons why uh, persecution is so little. One, the world's indifferent about spiritual things. The world really just doesn't care. Or our lives and our message lack the salt for the wounds in their heart. Or the light that can penetrate the darkness of their soul. I don't know that's why, but I know my weaknesses. I know my reticences, my failures to speak when opportunities are put before me. Not necessarily saying that's so for you, but that's one of the reasons maybe that we're not experiencing much persecution. Verse 27 to 36, Jesus moves on now and he speaks of the distinct life of the Christian. Blessings and woes to Israel's. How about for those who are blessed? Verse 27, but I say to you who hear, some are hearing, they're all hearing, some are listening and some are rejecting. But to those of you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. 
and as you wish others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do that, do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount, but love your enemy and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Jesus expects... He speaks of a distinct life. He speaks of a life of love versus a life of hatred. He spoke above of being hated. Now, here's how to respond when you are hated or reviled or reproached. He says, love your enemies. Verse 27, love your enemies. Verse 35, love your enemies. The distinguishing mark, they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. But now, Jesus says, love your enemies. A few weeks ago on Wednesday night, we, uh, I mentioned Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he talks about the difference between liking and loving. And we like one another, uh, usually because it's natural. We just kind of instinctively or just kind of fall into relationships with each other because of uh, I don't know, we're neighbors because uh, common uh, work background, common interests and hobbies, liking someone is a natural, it doesn't take any effort to like people who are naturally our friends. But Lloyd-Jones says love is really almost the opposite. Love takes great effort wherein we have to look past what we don't like about people and love them. In order to act kindly toward people that we don't particularly like, we're hopeful. Love is hopeful that our enemies change. But not resentful if they don't. He says, love is rooted and grounded in the gospel. Were you God's friend when he loved you first? No, you were his enemy. He brought you to himself when you were his absolute enemy. And the same type of love that we receive in God's saving grace, Jesus now commands his disciples to hand out, to live in. And he gives some some, uh, application or exhortation. uh, Look at verse 27. Love your enemies. There's four verbs here. Love your enemy. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. This is... Uh, the active law of love that the Lord Jesus puts out, puts forth. Love, do good, bless, and pray. Who do I love? I love my enemies. The, uh, who do I uh, do good to? Those who are hating me. Who do I bless? Those who are cursing me. Who do I pray for? The ones who are abusing me. And then he gives four examples, the passive law of love, if you will. These are what we do. Here's kind of a passive way. Uh, Verse 29, if they strike you on the cheek, give them the other side. From one who takes away your cloak, don't withhold your tunic. So give them your jacket and then give them your shirt too. Verse 30, give to everyone who begs from you. From the one who takes away your goods, don't demand them back. That's not practical at all, is it? Uh, This is what Jesus says. 
It's the words of our Lord Jesus. Uh, if you don't like that, if you want to criticize, criticize him. He, called, he who called his people to uh, this redeeming grace, he's promised to provide us the power to obey as he calls us uh, to obedience. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis says it's important to realize that these are in situations of persecution as he gives these uh, teachings on love. They're the hostile actions of those who hate Jesus and his disciples. We could, uh, and we've seen throughout this passage those who are haters and revilers. Uh, at verse 30 in particular, he, he points out, give to everyone who begs from you. Now, one of the uh, definitions of this word that is translated begs here is demands. Uh, we run across this when Jesus is standing before Pilate and he says he's done nothing wrong. And the crowds then, they were urgent, demanding, there's our word here, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. Now, Rev. Davis says we could take this here in the context of verse 30, do good to those who demand. Oh, whoa, no. Yes, verse 30. Give to everyone who demands from you. It says it's not a panhandler on the street corner asking for anything, but it's a hostile demand to those who hate Jesus and hate you because you're his disciple. Calvin says it's the actions of bad men in order to carry off others, bad men in order to carry off others' property. So what do we do when we are when we suffer on account of son of the Son of Man, because we're Christians and we're living in a Christian way? He says, uh, respond with active non-resistance. Takes away your jacket, giving your T-shirt. Jesus says, "Behold, in Matthew ten sixteen, behold, I send you out as sheep among wolves. Be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Maybe it, if it feels you be- makes you feel better about this teaching." Maybe it's talking to disciples under duress, being persecuted, not general commands for general circumstances. Surely Jesus doesn't demand us to be wimps, if you will, not to defend ourselves in situations. You know, your dad, maybe if you have, you hear stories regular of three brothers and uh, Dad commissions the two older brothers. If somebody's a bully to your younger brother, you you make sure that bully knows that he's he's not dealing with one. He's dealing with three, and you take care of that guy. You know, there, the, that's not the point here, I don't think. But we can't neglect the teaching of Jesus. And he you know, you may say, what am I supposed to be a doormat for the world? Well, we're called to live differently. We're called to live radically, distinctively different. Uh, If you love those who love you, big deal. Sinners do that. Verse 33, if you do good to those who are good to you, what benefit is that? Sinners do that. If you lend expecting to receive in return, Return, what credit is that? Blessing those who curse you and praying for them is different. Jesus lived this out for us. He loved his enemies, didn't he? 
He did good to those who hated him. He blessed those who cursed him. He prayed for those who were abusing him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They struck him, offered his other cheek. They tore his coat and gambled over it. He didn't criticize them for that. He revealed and then he interpreted the law of love for us. He also revealed it to Paul. When reviled, Paul says, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuge of all things. Be imitators of me, Paul says. We can't live this way except to the extent or the degree that our life is in Christ's life, manifested through us by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is teaching his disciples, persecuted or not, your behavior should astound the world. Your behavior should, uh, you should act like no other people act. Uh, Love with the love that makes the world wonder. So he says in verse 35, love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. You know, if you expect nothing in return, you'll never be disappointed. (laughs) How long is your list of expectations? Love your enemies, do good, lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for God is kind. Uh, There's a sting in the tail right here. Right? Love your enemies, okay. I, I do good, lend, expecting nothing in return. You're okay, I get a great reward. Because God is kind to those who love their enemies and do good and lend. That's what I thought should happen right here. I think it was Friday night after we got back from the wedding and I read this verse. For he is kind to me because I love my enemies. Oh, no, 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 no. Look what it says. He's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Well, yeah, wait a minute. What's the deal here? I thought he was going to be kind to me because I'm obeying his commands. The Lord turned me upside down on this one right here. This is a call to God's distinctively different. Uh, Astonishing and amazing love and grace. So here's the question that got asked to me as I was reading this. Why do you do good for anyone at any time? And the answer that Jesus gives us right here is verse 36. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. I wanted God to be kind to me, so I'm going to love my enemies. I'm going to do good. I'm going to lend. I don't expect anything back. You know, that's all right. But God says, no, you do good. You love your enemies because I love my enemies. There's our motivation. It's not so he'll be nice to us. It's because he is kind to ungrateful people. And therefore, as we want to be like Christ, we're kind to ungrateful, hating, reviling people. Yeah. I didn't like it either. (laughs) Love is being kind to those who hate and mistreat us because God is kind to them. 37 to 45, um, let's see, 
Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgiven, you will be forgiven. Given, it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap for with the measure you use, it will be measured back. I'm just going to say one thing right here. This is, um, this idea, measure for measure, I put in my note, this is one place where your standard affects God's standard. Um, The end of verse 38, with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Um, Yeah, we don't need to say much more there, do we? Are you judgmental? How about condemnatory? Do you have a hard time experiencing or living in the forgiveness of God? Maybe it's because you won't forgive others. Do you feel condemned by God? Maybe it's because you're a condemning kind of a critic. But he doesn't say never judge anyone. This is a about self-examination before we encourage one another as he goes on. Uh, Verse 41, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye and when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will clearly See clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. It's interesting, isn't it, that this is uh, this is replaced John three sixteen. Judge not, lest you be judged. That's replaced John three sixteen is a popular verse of the culture to quote to Christians, and they're making it. They're thinking it says exactly the opposite that it says. It says judge one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't be judgmental or or God will deal with you judgmentally. Take the, examine yourself. Know your inadequacies, your sins, confess them. And then you can see clearly to get the little speck out of your brother's eye. Three times he says the word brother. So he's calling us to do what many say exactly Uh, 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 the opposite of what they think this says. We're called to judge one another for the glory of God and for their benefit. Four, verse 43, and then no good tree bears bad fruit, or again, does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. It's an expansion of what he's teaching. The fruit of a person's life grows out, out of the condition of his or her heart. An evil heart can't produce good fruit. Goodness can only come from a heart indwelt by God's spirit. The mouth is a spigot that flows, out of which flows what's hidden away in the heart. Then the last four verses, Jesus says it's decision time. As he calls the disciples to judge themselves, examine the fruit of their own lives, the outward expression of the condition of the heart. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? A little bit different from what Jesus says, uh, how Matthew records uh, in the other sermon. Not everyone who says Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of God. But it's decision time, if you will. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? 
He's not looking for just an empty profession of faith. The only decision that matters is one that results in obedience to Christ's word. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? And then he illustrates it with the two builders and two foundations, the, the wise builder, the one who comes to me, verse 47, and hears my word and does them. I will show you what he's like. He's like a man who digs all the way down to the bedrock and sets the foundation of his house on the solid rock. And the winds come, and nothing can shake it off its foundation. It's too well built. The right decision puts Jesus' words, teaching, into practice. The one who submits to him as Lord comes to him, hears and does, follows his teaching. The one whose life is changed results in stability. The second one never digs deep enough to get to the bedrock. Fascinated with uh, Jesus, maybe, here in the crowd, but he'll soon depart. And the floods will come and they ruin. Notice the last phrase of the sermon. The ruin of that house was great. All you hear is the crashing down of the house as the tragedy happens. The tragedy of a false profession. Lord, didn't we do... Remember Matthew's conclusion? Didn't we do mighty things in your name? And if they were to say that here, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Maybe you did some things, but you didn't do what I told you to do. Follow me. Oh, but we... No, you didn't do what I told you to do. Not everyone who says Lord, Lord, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Why do you call me Lord? Why do you call Christ your Lord and don't do the things he says? One day there'll be a day of accounting. Didn't we, Lord, I... Depart from me, I never knew you because you didn't do the will of the Father that I preached to you. You didn't submit to me as Lord. You just professed my name. So there's two responses you have to decide. The Lord will do away with any mere enthusiastic, as it may be, profession of faith. I never knew you. And he'll receive any and all who come to him in repentance and faith. Well done, thy good and faithful servant. You have to decide. We all have to decide. You're going to follow Jesus or not? You're going to say, Lord, Lord, and then do the things he tells you? Or do you just want the benefits? That's an empty profession of faith. The benefits come as you lay down your life. Father, we thank you for uh, this great message. Convict us, convince us, grant mercy, help us. Lord, I pray for every person here now. that you would strike in their hearts the truth 
that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Your people help it to solidify our trust. Those who are not your people, Lord, convince them, give them a new mind to bow their knee to Jesus Christ, the only hope of the world. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.